Welcome to the CSC Podcast. I'm Phil Haas, Director of Marketing and Communications for Classic Stage Company. On this episode, we'll speak with Destiny Lilly and Rebecca Scholl, two casting directors who have done extensive work at Classic Stage Company on Broadway and around the country. We'll talk about casting classic plays and what theater goers might expect when theaters reopen after the pandemic. That's all coming up on the CSC Podcast. CSC has recently launched the Coming Back Stronger campaign to raise funds to secure the long-term success and financial health of the company. The Coming Back Stronger campaign is a place for donors of all levels to show their support for CSC's work and mission and will ensure that CSC can reopen after the COVID-19 shutdown stronger than before. Coming Back Stronger means expanding our artistic programming to reflect all voices. It means welcoming all audiences to a safe space means addressing the immediate financial impact of the shutdown and securing the future. The Coming Back Stronger campaign begins with you. Gifts of $50 or above will be recognized on our virtual donor wall. Find out more about the Coming Back Stronger campaign online at classicstage.org slash comingbackstronger. Destiny Lilly and Rebecca Scholl are two award-winning casting directors with Telsian Company, who have worked on many CSC productions, including Carmen Jones, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, Frankenstein, and our forthcoming revival of Stephen Sondheim and John Weidman's Assassins. Destiny recently cast the independent feature film The Subject, which won the Best Narrative Feature Award at the 2020 Art of Brooklyn Film Festival. In New York, Destiny is also cast plays at MCC Theater, Atlantic Theater Company, Second Stage, and Rattlestick Playwrights Theater, among others. An advocate for actors and artists, Destiny currently serves on the board of directors of the Casting Society of America. Rebecca's credits include the Arteos Award-winning Hamilton, the 2020 Broadway revival of West Side Story, Be More Chill, and the national tour of The Color Purple. Among her many off-Broadway credits, She's recently cast Alice by Heart at MCC Theater, as well as The Cradable Rock here at CSC. In addition to our production of Assassins, Rebecca is also working on the upcoming Broadway revival of The Music Man. Hi, Destiny. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Phil. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. So before we dive into casting in, in, in general and talking about it and talking about, you know, casting plays and, and classics and all that. Why don't I provide an opportunity for you to describe what does a casting director do? Because there are probably listeners who generally might know, I, I know what casting is, but not specifically what, what that actually entails and what you do. Um, Rebecca, do you want to you want to start and and say that? Sure. Um, and Destiny's heard me say this a million times to our interns and and friends and things like that. But I always compare a casting director to an interior designer because I think that's a helpful visual. In that we are hired, um, and this will be specific, I guess, to to theater for the moment. But we are hired by either a producer or a theater company, um, whether it's their season, like a classic stage. We um, are the casting directors for the season at Classic Stage, unless it's an outside production that comes 
comes in, um, or a specific project from a producer at different levels, uh, at different, whether they're at workshop phase or reading phase or about to go to Broadway, wherever they are in their process, they bring us on to help the creative team uh with their vision. Often it's the first time that the creative team is coming together to really talk about their show. Um, and we are part of the process of starting to fill in those slots and breathe life into it literally by helping them choose the best actors. And I compare it to an interior direct decorator because they are often hired by a client and are given a lot of information from that client on their personal taste, which might be very different from the decorator's taste and in this case, the casting director's taste or, you know, whoever else they're with. Um, but it is our job to uh, present options to the client that both reflect the client's tastes and what they've asked for, as well as maybe push the envelope a little bit, show them something outside the box a little bit, something that we've seen, you know, a new trend in or some outside, you know, anything new that we can help um, expand their world while still following their guidelines and with their input and with their advice um, to kind of create the world that they've designed for, for their show. Destiny, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that I would add is that it's also our job to really know the talent pool that's out there to really do research and, go see shows, you know, back when you could see shows in person, but, you know, to watch TV, to, to watch movies, to go see, you know, dance shows and concerts and all these different types of um, entertainment. You know, we go to uh, school showcases, all different ways to discover new talent. Cause it's really our job to know who's out there and bring them to the attention of our, of our creative teams. Is casting at classic stage, different than the way you cast either uh, for other theater companies, but also also when you're just casting for a particular show, you know, is that process a little bit different is what is brought to the table a little bit different? It is. And I will honestly say that destiny and I probably even have different experiences casting within classic stage, um, Mm -hmm. both because of the specific shows, as well as the specific directors. I've been lucky enough in that the three productions I've worked at at Classic Stage uh, were directed by artistic director John Doyle, whereas Destiny has had the privilege of working with directors that have been brought in on certain projects. So certainly the projects themselves are different. The directors themselves, you know, bring something different. But within Classic Stage compared to other theaters that I've worked with, I think oftentimes it calls for an actor who um, can rise to the occasion to uh, perform in a space that is so intimate like classic stage is. Oftentimes the productions are in the round or in the thrust or set up runway or something where the actor has to be so game and so subtle and so flexible to really um, create whatever world is created at classic stage. Oftentimes without any props, without any set uh, is so often done um, minimally at classic stage. They don't have anything to rely on, you know, like at a big, big Broadway player musical. Um, and that, uh, I, I think that's fun for an actor to, to have that opportunity. But I do think when it comes to casting, we are looking for something different in uh, actors training maybe, or just the energy that they bring into a room. Yeah, definitely. And I'd also just, add like every director kind of has their different process. And the cool thing about being at classic stages, I've gotten to work with John Doyle, who's amazing. 
Um, but also uh, like other directors as well, uh, Timothy Douglas, uh, Sharifa Ali, Victoria Clark. Um, and each of them has a different process, you know? And, you know, when we were working on Macbeth, for example, John really was interested in kind of finding the ensemble of people and then kind of figuring out which role they might go into. Um, you know, it was like a looser process. Like we had like Corey Stoll as Macbeth, but then it was like with everyone else, he really wanted to kind of like create an ensemble. And I think the same was true for um, for Arturo Uli as well with kind of building around Raul Esparza and then creating an ensemble around that. Whereas, you know, working with Timothy Douglas on Frankenstein, you know, he was very focused on finding, um, on finding the, 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 the Frankenstein, the, so in that production, like one actor plays both Frankenstein and the creature. So finding um, an actor who was really flexible to be able to do that. And so that, that process was very much like kind of like a working process and, you know, Timothy really working with each of the, each of the actors that came in and reading with them and like trying things with them. And it was very creative. And that was one where I got to kind of like sit back and watch. Cause it was kind of almost more like watching a rehearsal. Whereas like John Doyle tends to kind of meet people and talk to them and then they might read from the script or not, you know, it's a little more informal. And then, you know, sometimes we'll have a more kind of like typical process where it's like, yeah, we're going to like read sides from the script and we're going to see a lot of people. And then sometimes it's, all offers, you know, so it, it really does, does vary. Um, but I think one of the threads that connects it is that at classic stage, they're like, everyone tends to be looking for actors who are really steeped in stage acting, who have that background and who can then really dig into like the material. They're looking for people who are like kind of athletic actors who are used to like digging into material and creating, because like Rebecca said, like there's not necessarily going to be like a huge set or a huge, like, you know, all these other, you know, kinds of bells and whistles of theater. Like it's really reliant on the actors to bring the story to life. Um, So pretty much everyone, I think everyone that I've worked with there has really been looking for people who have that ability and also have, um, the ability to work in an ensemble. Yeah, to piggyback off of that, I completely agree. I think working at Classic Stage is probably the closest I'll ever come to casting a company of actors, um, to casting, you know, an ensemble of actors, even if I wouldn't necessarily start the process looking at the show as an ensemble show. I definitely think the way that the work is approached, as Destiny said, is always finding this company who can play off of each other. Sometimes it's because John often uses the technique of having people double or triple or, you know, stand in for those props or whatever it is, and they have to be, you know, such a company of actors. So I think that is is one of the biggest differences of, of working at Classic stage and and other regional or, or Broadway or community theaters or whatever it is it's really looking you you rarely you know hire one actor before you hire everyone I wonder with the plays that you've worked on at classic stage would you say that um, casting these particular stories or these particular classic stories or classic plays in a certain way has casting them, made them more contemporary, made them more modern. Um, you know, Destiny in particular, you worked on Frankenstein. You worked on uh, Miss Julie, which was uh, the adaptation of, of Miss Julie. Um, do you think that that the work that you've done in a way 
to bring particular actors into the room and then also onto the stage eventually has helped tell that story differently and in a more contemporary, more modern way? I do think so. But I also think it's really a collaboration with the, with the directors, like the directors of both of those projects, that's what they wanted. You know, they really wanted to through casting specifically, you know, with, with Timothy Douglas and Frankenstein, because he specifically came to us and said, I want to cast a black woman in this role. And that's not how the script was necessarily written. I would say it's not how the script was written. Um, but that was what he wanted to do. And we were really excited by that. We're like, oh, this is so great. This is not the kind of role that a black actress usually gets to play. This is this is using like, you know, a different side of their toolkit, you know, and it was really and the types of of different you know, women we were able to see was really great because, you know, it's like he didn't care as much about like age as much. Like we really kind of got to um an opportunity to bring in exciting people. Also like he had people that he'd worked with before he wanted to bring in. So that was like a process that was really fun because, you know, we got to see like, Oh great. Like these wonderful actors come in, you know, Timothy really works with them for like 15 to 20 minutes. And then it's like watching rehearsal and then he does it again with someone else and they bring something new to it. And then this actor brings something else to it, you know? So that was, um, that in particular was like, yeah, that was like, casting specifically is 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 going to tell a different version of this story than what was existing on the page. Rebecca, have you found that as well? I mean, I know Rebecca, you've done mostly music it's been musicals with us. There's The Cradle of Rock, there's Carmen Jones and then Assassins which although has not has not been on the stage yet. The set's waiting for us okay. and it will, it will happen when we can reopen, but you know, you did cast that as well. So uh, what 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 would you say to casting the, those musicals in particular that are that are seen as classic works too? Because the the casting for those shows has not followed the traditional route that you normally see with other revivals of those of those productions. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that casting uh, allows audiences first and foremost to kind of get out of their own way when watching a show if immediately they're not seeing on stage a reflection of what they you know any preconceived notions that they had about a work or just what they expected walking into the theater if if what they see on stage immediately uh, not takes them out of it because we certainly don't want to take them out of the story or, or make them ask more questions or anything like that but if it immediately kind of puts away any preconceived notions um I think we've already done our job of kind of bringing it into the 21st century because then it allows them to watch it with fresh eyes and hear it as, do you know, someone living today and working today and really hear the words and any other devices that the director has used to bring the story into the 21st century. So I do think that by John even just selecting these works, you know, for his seasons, um, oftentimes, you know, uh, Cradle Rock was very much in a season that had a lot of, you know, political fire behind it, whether it was fascism or, or any, or socialism or anything like that it, it, within the season. I think that's, you know, certainly the base level of where we started at in terms of the device that we would use to bring it into the 21st century. And then casting on top of that just allowed people to, to broaden that scope. Um, you know, with Assassins, we didn't want it to look like any other production that had been done in terms of just copying stereotypes of these, yes, real historical figures, but why not take something completely different so that you're not just 
stuck in your history book and can hear it for the first time and see it for the first time. Um, and then with with Carmen Jones, I will say, <laughs> unlike Assassins, which I do feel like while it is a more rare gem, more people have seen a production or heard the music or something than maybe Carmen Jones, which is which, which says a lot about everything, but is sad and, and is so wonderful that we were able to bring such, such a well-received production to classic stage. Um, and I think with the casting of, of Carmen Jones, what we faced was bringing that music into the 21st century. Um, you know, Cradle Rock has this like brilliant Americana um, uh, vaudevillian score that kind of like unsettles you at times and, and really throws you. But Carmen Jones has this like glorious, um, uh, you know, I, I never thought that I would be able to to work on a show if I wasn't working in the opera world where I was really listening to people do arias in, in our audition room. So, you know, right off the bat, we were seeing actors and asking them to do things that wasn't, you know, their 16 bar you know, contemporary musical theater cut that they were so used to. So um, it definitely weeded out a lot of actors who just didn't have that training or weren't comfortable with that um, or, or just hadn't, you know, sharpened those skills in a while and it allowed them to. So with casting, we really were able, I think, to dive deeper into our usual you know, casting talent pools. As Destiny said, it's our job to know everyone. You know, our minds are the Rolodex of actors all across the country. We see everything so that we can pull from that actor. But Carmen Jones really forced me to dive deeper into those, you know, classic music training programs or, you know, shows that maybe I wouldn't have attended in order to find this new crop of talent um, who could really, again, bring the stage training because you know, you are a classic stage and you have to meet that caliber, but also bring the nuance of, and, and, and training of singing, you know, such a rich, rich score. So I think, um, kind of finding actors who who had that operatic training but it didn't sound like you were going to an opera when when you went to see Carmen Jones you know it was still that beautiful mix of musical theater and and classic opera and storytelling and i think for most people it it felt like it could have been written yesterday and i think that's that's the point with a classic you mentioned that um you worked on you know the season that included the cradle of rock it included the Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, uh, Miss Julie and the Dance of Death, the two Strindberg plays uh, or Strindberg adaptations were part of that season. And that was a really political season. It was it was a, a socio-political season. It was it was grounded in, in that kind of theme, that that work. Um, does that make the casting process more difficult, more interesting um, when you have that going on? underneath everything? I mean, I think that at its best, theater is always political, you know? So choosing to do a pretty by-the-numbers revival of a well-known play is also political in its own way, you know? So I was really excited to dive into to that season because there were so many... Um, it was just like approaching a lot of the things that we are dealing with in our society, but through art, which is the thing that we do. So that was super exciting. But I think that's true. I mean, but I think that's true of like the season following it as well. I think that that's, 
I mean, I can't speak for John Doyle, but I think that that's like something that's on his mind, you know, that he is, you know, like very aware of, of what's going on in the world and chooses plays that are going to reflect that, but also engage people and make them think. Is there a particular kind of artist that has to then be in that production with John and to be able to tell that story? Um, does it take someone who has a certain mindset or a way of thinking that's a little bit different than you see with other plays or, or, or not necessarily? I think it's more about just like kind of the things that we said before, the kind of person who's willing to work in an ensemble, someone who wants to dig into a play and find new things in it. Someone who wants to, you know, like build a production with, with a director and, you know, a core of actors and isn't necessarily like, oh yeah, I'm going to sing my part or do my, my lines or my role. You know, it, it's really about creating the piece uh, anew a lot of the time, which is really exciting for a lot of actors, especially if they've been doing, you know, some more commercial things or if they've been doing a lot of film and television, they're like, oh my gosh, I get to like actually dive into a role. I get to work on it. I get to work with people who want to know what I think. Cause sometimes it's just like, okay, you just come and you do the lines or do the thing and then you go home. But the idea that they get to like really dive into something and work and do table work and all of that kind of stuff. Um, is exciting for, for a lot of actors. So um, I don't, I don't think it's like hard to cast or anything in that way. It's just, it's just about, you know, finding the right people. Yeah. I think, you know, you know, to be honest, they still have to check certain boxes of can they do X, Y, Z, you know, we're not going to say that everything goes out the window if we all of a sudden meet an actor who, you know, has the same sensibility and has the same passion and fire about this political piece or anything like that. You, they still have to, you know, uh, tick, tick certain boxes. But I, I do think it's an, it's an exciting process for us when we are with a director who has such a clear idea of why they want to, you know, tell this story now, you know, but are open to, you know, meeting the right person and, and, and seeing, finding the right fit. You know, um, so it's exciting for us when someone walks in who can speak intelligently ab- about the piece or has done their homework about researching the time or, or, or what it is, um, you know, John always said with with Cradle Rock, you know, people said like, why, why would you do it? It was like a flop, you know, like why do it now? And it like excited him to like have a challenge. And I think for a lot of actors, it's the same thing. They, you, it brings out the best in them to, you know, to try this material that isn't, you know, often done necessarily in this way, whether it's a classic and has been revived a lot, it hasn't necessarily been done in this way or heard this way, or it just feels um, like there's a reason to do it now. Switching gears slightly, I'd love to know what both of your thoughts are on how casting might change due to the pandemic and, or not maybe due to the pandemic, but post pandemic, you know, what are we, what's going to be different? Um, You know, we, not only do we have to deal with the after effects of of the coronavirus and all that, but during this time um, we've, we faced a reckoning about racial injustice as well. And that certainly is going to inform uh, the work of, of, of many theaters moving forward. What do you both see that that is going to happen next? Because we know at Classic Stage, we've, we've been working towards making the idea of what is a classic story uh, different and changing that and moving that forward. And so that will encompass 
podcasting and everything when, when, when it's time to do those works. But what specifically in, in your worlds do you think are going to be the big changes that we're, that we're going to see moving forward? I mean, I think that there are already some changes happening, um, you know, in terms of in terms of the pandemic, what it has brought out is that there are all these options that exist with doing more casting virtually. You know, I still think in theater in particular, we're going to still cast people in a physical room, you know, eventually, you know, but I think that having the opportunity to cast a wider net when we're starting, you know, because we can see more people who aren't necessarily based in New York, that that's something that will stick, I think, post-pandemic, or we'll still be able to, you know, get self-tapes or have Zoom sessions with actors who aren't necessarily based in the area, which is something that we didn't do as much for theater before. Um, so I think that that's something that's, that's changing a lot. Um, it's interesting, though, because there's a because when you're able to be in the room, there's a certain level of, I mean, I won't say it's an even playing field, but I think it's like a more even playing field. Whereas sometimes with technology, there are a lot of barriers, um, like socioeconomic barriers that can make it less democratic a process, you know? So I think there's kind of like you know, there are good and bad things about it. You know, it's great that we can see more people and we can reach out more, but also, you know, having your, the, the having casting decisions based on how good your internet connection is can be really unfortunate, you know? Yeah, we see that with, with school and education right now too, that kids that are, that are, don't have the laptop or they have to share a laptop or, all of these situations, it, it makes the learning experience virtually unfair. And I think I, I've seen it too on a performance level when you see some of the virtual performances that have come out and everyone's in the various squares and whatnot. Um, there have been like some dance things where I've seen where people are all doing like, you know, a dance from a chorus line or something like that. And some of them have these great decks and lawns where they can do the whole dance on this and that. And someone's in their tiny little apartment doing it. And that just in and of itself is it's so difficult to, to to have that artist be able to express everything they want to express when they're when they don't have the lawn to do the dance on, um, and so I, I really I really understand what you're saying there, Destiny. I think that that's something that that we're going to have to figure out, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm 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 hoping that you know we can have like a mix of in person and virtual auditions that will ultimately make it so everyone can put their best foot forward. Um, I just think that that's still like a ways off, unfortunately, but I also think that, um, just, you know, I've, I've also, as, as has Rebecca been working on some film and TV stuff recently, because there's not a lot of theater to work on, unfortunately, but in, in that landscape as well, it does allow us to, to get submissions from more people. Like we are able to, you know, if we were scheduling appointments in, in, in an office and like okay, I can see maybe like 20 people for this role. Maybe I have time to like see 20 people. Whereas, you know, since we're getting self-tapes, I can see like 30 or 40, you know, like you don't want to go crazy because you don't want to make it like, oh, we have hundreds of people, you know, filming for this like three line role. But it does expand the number of people that you can see. And someone who you were maybe on the fence of like, oh, I don't know, does he have a strong enough resume to bring him in? Mm -hmm. 
and you've only got like so much time. And, but now it's like, oh yeah, definitely. You know? So then that makes it so that I think people that, that either we're not familiar with or people who maybe have a little less experience still get opportunities, which I think is great and something that we can work to incorporate more once, you know, some of them, once like theater is back and more in-person audition is happening as well, because I think it's important for us to be able to have the, have that opportunity available for actors that maybe are just starting out or just, you know, don't quite have as much experience. You know, I think that this pause, if we can call it that, um, has forced conversations to happen that should have been happening long before that have been happening long before, but, uh, but now, you know, uh, we we are forced we have nothing but time to sit and think about how can this industry become more equitable be, you know become uh, a safe haven you know with, with all the stories that come out about how can we you know make sure that once we do hire an actor they feel safe whether it's in the audition room the rehearsal room at the theater anything like that i do think that the conversations are happening which is is wonderful because it takes more than one advocate behind the table. I think we've found in the audition room, um, you know, while I'm not, you know, touting Telsey as, you know, uh, you know, the person leading the charge in equitable casting, I do feel like that is always at the forefront of our mind when we start a project. How can we, you know, see as many people? How can we expand this role? What is specific about this that makes it X, Y, or Z? So I think having as many advocates and as many allies behind the table during the process, whether that's, you know, from, you know, the top down um, in the room, allows there to be, you know, the right voices, you know, speaking to it so that, um, so that, you know, when you're casting a show that isn't necessarily steeped in race or anything like that, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work on shows like On Your Feet or The Color Purple or The Book of Mormon, where it was very specifically, you are either white or you are black, you know, um, while I've been lucky enough to work on shows like that, or West Side Story, um, that uh, feels like it's very clear, although there are then so many levels that we can get into in terms of colorism and what is authenticity in, in those worlds. If you take those shows aside that aren't necessarily, you know, quote unquote, you know, about race or steeped in, in anything like that, and you're just casting a new musical, whether it's set in, you know, 1950s Iowa or turn of the century Iowa um, or anything mm -hmm. like that, how can we be so specific about each character so that the conversation now isn't just about colorblind casting, it's about color conscious casting? And, you know, besides just making the stage look like America now, like Hamilton how can we uh, support those actors when they do get that role or when they come in for that role? Um, whether that's rewriting a character to, you know, have a real story behind them because it is specific about their race or just all everyone on the team being in agreement that this role has nothing, you know, to do with race. And so we are going to see everyone and we aren't going to care if the audience walks in and says, Hmm, why, what are they trying to tell me here? You know, it's not our job anymore to hold the hands of the audience members and, you know, to walk them through it. You know, we're painting a picture that the creatives have had and trying to provide opportunity for as many actors as possible in a safe way and in an intelligent way. So I am hopeful that, 
uh, moving forward, these conversations continue to be had, but also that it then leads to action by putting people behind the table who, uh, you know, can authentically speak to whatever stories are being told, but also before any casting decision is made, everyone on the creative team uh, is in agreement about why and how and, you know, uh, do these actors feel supported. You talked a little bit there about audience pushback, and that's something that I face as, you know, I'm I'm the marketing director for Classic Stage, and I hear it you know, from the audience right away when they when they don't like something that they've seen or, or whatever that is. Um, and sometimes we do hear it in regards to casting. Um, it's happened, unfortunately, due to the race of someone cast in a particular role, which, which I think is despicable. But it's also happened just when they don't like a particular actor and the way they're doing it, right? Um, how do, because I don't know the answer to this, how do we... How do we get past that audience pushback? How do we break free of that? Because I think that's one of the real barriers that we're going to face moving forward after this pandemic is over. Um, and I'm really, I'm, I'm curious as if, if you think that casting will play a role in that. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally think if you're making work that is based in your artistic integrity and is authentic and is about you, like, really working with a team of people to tell a story in like an authentic and artistic way. And the audience pushes back. My thought is find a new audience, you know, because I think that, that that could be, you know, it's like there are entire staffs of theaters that are all about audience development. And it's like, maybe you just need to find a new audience if that's the work that you're doing. Um, I agree. And I I think it changes. It'll evolve too. Right. Don't you think? yeah. Yeah. And you can build your audience like, you know, yeah, not everybody's going to dig what you're doing. You know, not everybody's going to be into your work and that's cool. But, you know, I think that, you know, if you can really stand by your work as being like, you know, like thoughtful and artistic and progressive and authentic, then there will be an audience that responds to it. It just might not be the people who normally come to your theater. So it's about finding those people and getting them to come to your theater and then hopefully getting them to come to the next show and the next show. And that's how you can build an audience, I think as well. I know it's a little easier said than done, but no, it's, it's true, I totally I, I, agree. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I, that's what, I mean, that's what we're working on. And that's what we're, we're trying to do as much as possible. Classic stage. Um, you know, we're, it happened even generally when John Doyle took over as artistic director, people were used to seeing particular types of classic plays. There were, uh, there were more, you know, costumes, for example, with, you know, big hoop skirts and things like that. Um, You know, that was, that was, that was popular for many years at classic stage. And when John came in, you didn't get the hoop skirt so much anymore. It was, you know, a lot of, of basic um, contemporary attire, for example. And, that ruffled feathers <laughs> uh, for a lot of those audience members, and a lot of the a lot of the the loyal supporters during the years when that was the norm, they did go away, and when we did lose them, um, and and that's okay because we still have a very strong audience base at CSC um, that you know was interested in the text, interested in the work, and then we gained audience that way too. I I greatly admire, you know, any theater that has, you know, a subscriber base who then when they are planning their season have to take that into consideration. Um, 
because I, I do know from being an audience member how quick people are to turn even before the lights have come up and audibly make comments. And you're like, A, you don't know who you're sitting next to, but B, just <laughs> let it breathe for a minute. You know, it, it, it's something that I'll, I'll never quite understand and have turned to my family to make sure that they don't ever talk within a theater. Um, <laughs> I, but I will say that, uh, you know, even if, if I should be, you know, someone who, who goes into everything with an open mind, as a very stupid example, I just started watching Bridgerton on Netflix. And my first thought was, oh, are they doing colorblind cast? Like I immediately, my mind started rolling about, uh, you know, are, do they specifically choose a black actor to play? Is there going to be something that, you know, unfolds about that plot line? Or is it just, you know, to paint, you know, this beautiful picture? You know, so if my mind immediately goes there, I imagine that other, you know, audience members' minds go there. But I think it's because we're so used to seeing tokenism on stage and then reading into it when, you know, you know, if Josh Henry is, you know, the leading carousel, like what is the reason behind that? It can't just be that he was, you know, chosen as the actor or how does that play into the socioeconomic status of the character or whatever it is. I think we're so steep in that, that we just have to keep producing work that goes maybe, you know, so far in the opposite direction that eventually it'll level out to where we come into a play and have no preconceived notions, you know, about the types of people we're expecting to see on stage and so that, sure, if you don't like the actor's performance, that's one thing. But if you can't, you know, wrap your head around or you can't get out of your own way in terms of like their type, for lack of a better word, um, then I think we have a, still a long way to go in terms of, uh, of pushing the envelope so that we're not just used to seeing tokenism on stage. My final question for both of you. Uh, so we are compiling a list of... Uh, plays, books, movies, whatever whatever pieces of work um, that you think should be considered a classic but isn't. Uh, so we've heard from our various guests and we've uh, we have a list on our website. You can go to all of the um, the reading lists for each podcast episode uh, and find out about the works mentioned in the episode uh, as well as these selections. So I'd love to ask each of you what work or works, would you add to our, our list of growing classics? Who wants to go first? Uh, Rebecca, why don't you go first? I'll go first because I'm sure Destiny will have a much more intelligent answer than, than I have. You know, in thinking about it, I, you know, I want to pick a musical because that's what I do and that's where I live and that's what brings me joy. And, you know, I, I've, I've had the pleasure of seeing so much great theater that I consider a classic because of their, their scores and, and what they represent or because of their, their storyline or even just the casting in my mind that, you know, should live forever. But um, this is, maybe it's the religious studies major in me that, um, that comes out, but I just, I go back to, it's going to sound so silly, but I go back to Fiddler on the Roof primarily because of the production I was fortunate enough to see this past year, the Yiddish uh, Folkspring production of Fiddler on the Roof um, that I then recommended to everyone I knew, whether they'd ever seen a production of Fiddler on the Roof or not, the movie, whatever it was. Um, because for me, and I had seen Broadway productions, I had seen national touring productions, I was in it in high school, you know, I, I run the gamut of the show. I thought I knew it backwards and forwards. And hearing it in, you know, 
it was what written in the 1960s, this musical, but hearing it in the language it was written in, in the late 1800s, um, you know, by Shalom Aleichem, uh, and I just feel like it really stands the test of time. I feel like, uh, you know, a character who is forced to reckon with his traditions um, in an ever-changing world and being flexible and finding the balance while, you know, dealing with family matters, while dealing with love. And then you add, you know, the exquisite score, you add comedy, you add, you know, iconic dance numbers. To me, uh, it this production that Jamie Beth cast this year just lit a new fire for uh, why I think that Fiddler on the Roof deserves to, you know, be in the canon of works that everyone should see. Great choice. I think that's an amazing choice, Rebecca. Um, Yes. Now I I love Fiddler on the Roof. Um, Yeah. um, I know I didn't get to see that, um, that, that Yiddish production. And I know you saw, it was like not too long before the pandemic that you saw it, right? Truly. It was one of the last things I saw. Yeah. And I remember you recommending it and I was like, oh, I should see that. And then, you know, chaos. Um, <laughs> um, I always, oh gosh, there's so many things. Um, so, so, so many things, but I would recommend, um, there are a few plays that I feel like, you know, how sometimes there's like a, a playwright who has like one play everybody knows and then one play that people know a little bit less that is like maybe like just as good or possibly even better than the play that people know. And I was thinking a lot about one of the last plays I saw before the pandemic started was a soldier's play at a roundabout, just Charles Fuller's play, which is great play. Um, and that cast was, was great. Um, but um also by Charles Fuller is a play called Zoo Man and the Sign, which I know they like revived off Broadway maybe like 12 years ago or so, but I feel like it doesn't get revived enough. It has really relevant themes in it. It's about like a 12 year old girl who is murdered and how there are these witnesses who for different reasons don't come forward. And it's really compelling and feels, you know, of the moment, even though I think it was written in like maybe the late seventies or early eighties. Um, and I think that's like a piece that I'd really love to see like explored again, you know, today, because it's still relevant today and how how kind of sad it is that it's still relevant today. But I think that like a an audience and and a core of actors today would would approach it differently, even then it was approached like I think they did it at signature maybe like ten or twelve years ago. But it'd be even different now, you know. And I think it's something that also would be great to see, you know, outside of New York, because sometimes the thing that I think is great about like a classic is that it's not just produced in New York. It's usually something that gets produced like all over the country and hopefully all over the world. So I'd love to see that play elevated to classic status so that it could be produced everywhere. I love that term elevated to classic status. I might steal that for future episodes. That's great. And I don't know that play. I'm so excited to go read that now. Yeah. Yeah. Read it. It's good. That's the best part of this. I have this like huge reading list now that I have to get to. That that sounds great. Well, thank you both for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, this was a great conversation, and um, hopefully, our audience learned a little bit more about you know the process of casting and, and how it works at Classic Stage, and you know a hint of of what they might see moving forward in the future. So, thank you both so much. It's been been great. Thank you, Phil. Look forward to seeing you in the theater sometime soon. Yeah, thank you so much.
Thanks for listening. For more information on Classic Stage Company, visit us online at classicstage.org. There you'll find info on the company, as well as the reading lists from this and all past episodes. Again, I'm Phil Haas, and I hope you'll join us next month for an all-new episode of the CSC Podcast. Take care.